Welcome to worship with Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. At Dawson, we seek to be found faithful as God's people as we become and help others become faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Now join us as we worship God through the teaching of His Word in today's message. Church, as we continue to worship, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 3, as we're in a series entitled Entrusted. John chapter 1 was our guide last week as we looked at John the Baptist as this prototype, this example of our call to be witnesses, to point people to Jesus. John chapter 3 is our guide as we think of our role and the message that we are called to share. If I ask you a question, I wonder how you would answer this question. Are you born again? Are you born again? That's a question that I have a feeling that if you were to ask the average friend of yours, the average neighbor of yours, the average coworker, or even person that's sitting in the pew to your left or right, they, they might not have the information to be able to answer that question. That phrase is a phrase that might get you, well, it might get you some sideways glances. It might have some skeptical looks that would come because that is a loaded phrase. It is a phrase that really has been jettisoned in a lot of the conversation that we have, even as Christians, about what has captured our heart. That is a phrase that kind of hit its apex decades ago. Some of you are old enough in the sanctuary to remember when that phrase was really at its height of utilization. Chuck Colson was an attorney. He was in the inner circle of Nixon's administration. And when Watergate went down, Nixon went to prison. Excuse me. Of course, Nixon did. But also Colson goes to prison. And when Colson goes to prison there, uh, he, well, if you remember, he becomes a follower of Jesus. And Chuck Colson, when he was in prison, he writes his own biography. The autobiography of Colson is entitled what? Born Again born again. And so Colson's time in prison is a time where he is spiritually reborn by the work of Jesus. Many of you maybe attended, some of you no doubt maybe placed your faith in Jesus at a Billy Graham crusade. And you remember Billy Graham at the height of his popularity when he was preaching to tens of thousands of people, when there were millions of people that were hearing his messages on television, he, he would not end a message without asking the question, have you been born again? In the 70s, when Jimmy Carter, the governor, Jimmy Carter was running for presidential election, he was interviewed by a magazine and he identified himself as a born again Christian. And for the first time, that, that, that phrase gets connected to a presidential candidate and that phrase becomes sort of uh, polarizing and it becomes politicized. And many people have sort of moved away from using that phrase born again because it, it conjures up all kinds of images, all kinds of misunderstandings. And so we talk a lot about our faith and we talk a lot about trusting in Jesus, but rarely are you going to hear, certainly not as much as you would have decades ago, are you born again? What does that phrase mean? What doesn't that phrase mean? 
John chapter 3 is our guide here because that phrase is not a phrase that we just invented. That phrase is embedded within the very lips and words of our own Savior, Jesus, when he says to this religious leader by the name of Nicodemus, you must be born again. Uh, Hear the word of the Lord starting in verse 1, chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven, or kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know when we bear witness to what we have seen but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. Are you born again? If Colson would use that language coming out of a conversion in prison, if Billy Graham would ask that question, are you born again? What does that phrase mean and what does that phrase not mean? Can I tell you two things that that phrase doesn't mean from our text this morning? The first from verse one of chapter three, being born again is is more than just being religious. I hope you see that real clearly in the story of Nicodemus coming to Jesus. Nicodemus is as religious as he possibly can be 2000 years ago. The text tells us he was a Pharisee, tight-knit brotherhood, tight-knit group that was meticulous and their, well, implementation of the law. They would take the Old Testament law and they were very serious about crossing their T's and dotting their I's. They had a book that was called the Mishnah to give you just one example, and I could give you many, but one example in Exodus chapter 20, we have one of the 10 commandments is to keep the Sabbath holy. And so what does that look like? Well, the Pharisees had in their book called the Mishnah, they had 24 chapters that told you exactly what you couldn't do lest you break the Sabbath. They, they crossed their T's meticulously. They dotted their I's that nothing was left to your thought. Nothing was left to their thought. They, they, they applied it very specifically. But notice he wasn't just a Pharisee, but the text tells us he was a ruler of the Jews, verse one. That meant that he was a part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was 71 religious leaders. Uh, The closest sort of correlation that we would have is to imagine this is Israel's Congress and this is Israel's Supreme Court wrapped together here. It's not only a religious body, but it is a political body. So Nicodemus is coming to Jesus, not as just somebody, not just anybody. He, he He is someone of power. He is someone of prestige. He is someone that has this huge religious pedigree that comes to Jesus and notice what Jesus says to him. It's not enough. 
All of your religiosity is not enough. You must be born again. So being born again is more than just being religious. But secondly, from our text here, we see that being born again is more than just knowing about Jesus. Nicodemus has got his facts straight about Jesus. He first identifies him as a rabbi, so he is familiar with the teachings of Jesus. He then uh, references the miracles of Jesus. He, he knows of the miraculous deeds that Jesus is doing and who Jesus comes or claims to come from, to come from God the Father. He comes at night, which is a, a timestamp for us. That certainly means that Nicodemus doesn't want the rest of the Pharisees, doesn't want the Sanhedrin to see him. He, he is going to have tremendous pushback if he's seen in the light of day, if he's seen in public with Jesus. But it's, I think it's more than that. One of the things that John does throughout his gospel is he uses dark and light. He uses night and day. He uses them throughout his gospel as metaphors, as symbols. So Nicodemus comes to Jesus and the spiritual light bulb has not gone off yet. He comes to Jesus, not just in the darkness of the night, but the darkness of his soul. He knows about Jesus. He is religious, but it's not enough. He must be born again. And Jesus tells him this in verse three, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus is absolutely confused about this. Much of the interchange in John chapter three is Nicodemus thinking that Jesus is talking on a physical level and Jesus is talking on a spiritual level. Nicodemus is trying to figure out how this happens biologically and Jesus is trying to tell him how this happens spiritually. Comes back to him in verse five, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, I'm not talking about physical birth here. I'm talking about something that you should know. Jesus chides Nicodemus. You are a teacher of the law. Do you not know your own words, the own scriptures that you so meticulously apply? Most likely Jesus has in mind. He has in mind in verse five, the prophet Ezekiel, you'll see it on the screen here. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. Ezekiel chapter 36, and from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You know what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus? You need not a physical rebirth. You need a spiritual rebirth. Nicodemus, you're dead in the darkness of your sin. And the only hope is God's work in you, God's work creating spiritual life in you, allowing you to be cleansed from your sin. Nicodemus is devout, but his devotion is not enough. Nicodemus is knowledgeable, but his knowledge is not enough. Jesus looks at this devout, knowledgeable person and says, you must be born again. If being born again is not just solely being religious, if it's not just knowing about Jesus, then the question remains, what does it mean? Well, notice in our text here that Jesus is very clear. Being born again is a work not of you, not of me, not of any man or woman, but it is the work of the spirit and the spirit alone. Verse eight, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. 
so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Do you hear that Jesus is saying that, that spiritual life is not something that you can obtain. It is not something that you earn. It is not a lifetime of you trying and God giving you a reward at the end of your life well lived. It is not you doing your part and meeting God halfway. And when God sees your initiative and when God sees your work and when God sees how much you want to have a relationship with him, then he comes and meets you halfway here. No. That's not what it is when we're dead in our sins. It's not us doing our part and God chipping away at his part. Spiritual life is life that is given by the spirit alone. So being born again is the work of the spirit. Being born again is a gift that all of us here in the sanctuary can receive by trusting in Jesus. Verses 14 through 18, it's a beautiful word that you need to hear just as much as Nicodemus needed to hear. And as the Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Do you know this verse? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We so often quote this verse out of the context of the conversation. But here you see that this is sort of the culmination of Jesus trying to, to make this simple and to make Nicodemus understand this. And so we see John three sixteen for God in verse 17 did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world may be saved through him, whoever believes, do you see that refrain here? Whoever believes, verse 15, whoever believes, verse 16, whoever believes, verse 18 in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Jesus is trying to make this clear to Nicodemus, a religious leader of the day, someone who is knowledgeable in what we know as the Old Testament, his scripture. He quotes Numbers as an allusion here in, in chapter 24 of Numbers. And it is, it is for Nicodemus a really familiar story for us. It's a little bit off the beaten path. It is a story of, of the Israelites being set free from bondage in Egypt. God is part of the Red Sea. He's brought them into the wilderness. He's leading them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they're out of Egypt, but Egypt still has its tentacles upon them and they're grumbling all the way in the wilderness. Their sinfulness, it just comes to, to this head where, where God condemns their sinfulness and he sends poisonous snakes. You want to talk about getting the attention of people that, that did it then. It's this way of God saying, I hate sin. And sin will be punished. And these serpents, they slither in the midst of the people of God and, and there's venomous snakes that bite them and, and they are in a, a overwhelmed with what are we going to do here in the wilderness? Moses bows before God and he intercedes and God says, I'm gonna bring a solution. And here's the solution. It seems strange to our ears, but what God told Moses to do in the midst of the wilderness as the antidote to the venom was to fashion a bronze serpent and to lift it up on a pole. And for every Israelite that had been bitten to look to that pole as, as the, the solvent the solution, their salvation in the midst of the wilderness. And so they did in Numbers 24. And this is what Jesus is saying. You remember that story, Nicodemus? 
the son of man, which is me, will be lifted up on a pole. And the venom of sin that infects all of humanity has but one solution. And that one solution will be my death. So what Jesus is doing by referencing this story is saying, this is where I'm headed. This will be me. I will be the bronze serpent that is lifted up and everyone who looks to me will be saved from the, the, the venom that flows through our soul, the venom that flows through our heart, the venom that flows through us, that separates us from a holy God. And it leads, well, it leads to death, physical death and spiritual death. Well, how, how do we look to Jesus on the cross. Well, notice again in verse 15, notice again in verse 16, notice again in verse 18, we have this repetition, whoever believes, whoever believes, whoever believes, this is what it means to be born again. It is a gift that is received by believing God for it. It is trusting and placing our confidence in him, it is acknowledging that that venom runs through us, that we're sinners and that sin separates us, but it is placing our confidence. This is what belief is. It's not us just being religious. It's not us just knowing informational facts. It is placing our full confidence in him. This is the message that saved our hearts. And this is the message that every Christian in this room has been entrusted to share with our family members and our coworkers and our neighbors. This is the way, this is salvation, looking to Jesus. It's more than being religious. It's more than knowing about him. I find it interesting that verse 16, John three sixteen, is arguably the most familiar passage in all of the Bible. And it's embedded in this conversation that Jesus is having with a religious leader. And it is, it is clouded with confusion. The whole back and forth, Nicodemus is saying, what are you talking about? And Jesus answers and Nicodemus says, now, what are you talking about here? And it is if God in his wisdom gives us one of the clearest synopses one of the clearest cliff notes of what the gospel is, all that I've been saying to you, Nicodemus, I'm gonna bring it to this place of culmination and give you a passage that, that even in the course of these next weeks, many of you on Saturday and many of you on Sunday, you're gonna flip on the television and you're going to see a field goal kicker kicking a field goal. You're gonna see a field goal kicker kicking an extra point and you're gonna see somebody in the stands in the end zone hold up this sign and out of all the verses that they're going to choose, they're gonna choose this verse, John three sixteen. You know why? Because it's the bright diamond that shines so beautifully in the Bible. It is the hope diamond of the Bible. It is one of the clearest explanations of God's love for you. Here's the truth. If you know nothing of the Bible and this is your first time to enter into a church, start here. I'm glad you're here. And if you feel as if you've just exhausted the Bible and you know everything about it, this is your home base return here to John 3.16. It's an invitation that goes out to all to know God deeply and to know God intimately. It is a banner, John 3, 16 is, to hang over your life because it reminds us of God's unending and unwavering love to each of us that are here this morning. It's a reminder, God isn't disappointed in you. He's not saying to you, clean up your act, 
get your stuff together and maybe if you do enough, I will forgive you. It isn't God saying, I'm angry with you, stay in the other room, I don't wanna see you right now. It's not God saying to us, I've moved on from you, I've dropped you, I've gone to greener pastures. It is God saying to every one of us here that he has set his affection toward you. For God so loved, fill in your name. For God so loved you. Don't tire of this verse. Don't feel like you have moved on from the A, B, C's of the gospel. This is the X, Y, and Z of your Christian life right here. This is A to Z. This is all of who we are. This wonderful truth that God loves you right where you are, just as you are. Years ago, I was pastoring another church in another town and one of my friends, Mr. Jimmy, was in his 70s and we would oftentimes meet for lunch. He was a very faithful member of the church, 60 years of membership of the church that I was pastoring. Second row, far right, sat there every Sunday. I taught a Sunday school class, a pastor's class. It was taught for decades by the senior pastor of that church and I had the baton passed to me and Mr. Jimmy was a longtime member of that class. Every time we'd meet, he would talk about the Bible uh, scripture plan that he was walking through every year. He would uh, take a a Bible reading plan and he would go from Genesis to Revelation and, and God so fed him through that. Very, very faithful man who gave to the church, served in the church, served through the church. He had a heart attack. Very scary moment in his life. I end up in the ICU with just me and Mr. Jimmy and I asked him a physical question. I sort of asked him, Mr. Jimmy, how are, you, how are you holding up? And he looked at me with a look that I will never forget, with words that I will never forget. He looked at me and he said, David, I hope in the end that I've done enough. I hope that I've done enough. Mr. Jimmy had done so much in his life. A wonderful career, accomplished career, a wonderful legacy of faithfulness in the church. But what I gently reminded him of in that hospital room is what I will gently remind you of is your enough is not enough. I want to just gently remind you of what is foundational for us in the message that we share, that your giving is not enough. Your going is not enough. Your attendance is not enough. That that we are here reminded that what justifies us, what saves us is not our striving, not our doing, but it is looking to the one who is enough, who has paid it all. Our hope in life and death is Christ alone. Praise God that what justifies us in the end isn't us getting our stuff together in the end and having more good than we have bad and hopefully our good outweighs our bad. Would any of us want to come to the end of our last days and be able to stand before God hoping that's what justifies us? And the good news is 
that never has to be for any of us here. Our enough is not enough. He is enough. It's a message that I hope you know, and it's a message that I hope that is deeply embedded in your heart that you can receive this gift of salvation by faith. It's a gift that you do not earn. It is a gift that you receive. Now, what about Nicodemus? You know, it's interesting. Have you ever thought about this? If you've ever studied this passage, it's easy for us to get kind of lost in the John 3.16 of John chapter 3. Nicodemus sort of exits off the stage. The spotlight moves away from the conversation and we're left with question marks. But what about the rest of Nicodemus' story? Did he believe? Did he look to Jesus? Well, John 3 doesn't answer that for us. We have two more occurrences of Nicodemus and John's gospel showing up. One is John chapter seven, where there are the temple guards that are having an argument with the Pharisees and the Pharisees are saying, none of us will believe in Jesus. They're disparaging the name of Jesus. They're, they're really maligning who Jesus is. And you see their, their plans to crucify him along with the rest of the religious leaders coming to fruition right there. And there's one person that John tells us stands up and says, hold on. Haven't we judged him too quickly? And you know who that person was? Well, of course you do. It was Nicodemus. But did he believe then? One more time he shows up in John's gospel. He shows up at the crucifixion. It wasn't before the crucifixion, it was after the crucifixion. Joseph of Arimathea, he takes Jesus's body off the cross and he goes to give him a dignified burial. And you know who shows up on the scene to assist? Well, it's none other than Jesus's conversation partner in John chapter three. I hope you know this, maybe you do that for Jesus to have been accompanied in his death by Nicodemus would have been Nicodemus saying, I, 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 I risk my position, I risk my prestige, I'm with this man. See, many of our conversions are conversions that maybe happen in a moment after we first heard the gospel, maybe the first time we heard a message like John 3.16, and, and hearing it the first time, we had that message penetrate our heart and the spirit of God drew us to him. And it was a Damascus Road kind of conversion. But I have a feeling that some of our stories are hearing John 3.16 and leaving unpersuaded maybe with questions and confusion. And our conversion is a conversion that happens not in John chapter three and not in the John chapter seven of our life, but it might happen in the John chapter 19, months or even years later. But the conversion of a soul is a miracle nonetheless, whether it's the first time you've ever heard the gospel or the hundredth time. It is the spirit that saves and it is received by faith in Jesus. So I ask you, are you born again?
I want you to hear a story of one who answers that question with a resounding yes. There are hundreds of stories that we could tell of the spirit of God drawing his children to faith in him. But I want you to hear the story of Cole, a teenager who's a follower of Christ that's been captured by the spirit and God's spirit continues to work in his life. Will you see the story with me? I feel pretty ordinary for um, a person. I mean, I'm just a kid in Alabama who happens to go to church. My name is Cole Griffiths. I'm a seventh grader in Pazitz. I play basketball and golf, and I grew up in the church. And last year at Kid Life, I decided to make Jesus my savior. I had wanted to do it, but I just never really seemed to get the courage to go up to someone and talk about it. And then that week, I got to talk with um, Mr. Brad Gowing, and um, we had a great talk, and we prayed, and then I accepted Jesus. Middle school, when you first walk in, pretty scary. Yeah, it's, it's tough. Jesus kind of helps me through that because he knows that I've got school friends, but I also have Jesus as my ultimate friend and helper. One of my favorite Bible passages is Psalm 119. And it really talks about how your words and your actions, they can praise God or they can kind of tear you away from God. And it's really powerful for me. I feel like now that I've gotten into middle school, all people's like actions and their words, they kind of get people angry and mad and they can kind of cause a lot of harm to people. So I thought that I should try and praise God through all my actions and words. My parents signed me up to go to Ecuador with them and we went over there and we learned a lot and we helped a lot. It made me feel kind of good that I could go down there and be a part of something that was bigger than myself and able to help other people. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our family of faith or to learn how to become a follower of Jesus, please visit DawsonChurch.org. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.